uh, it's now my job to share um, some thoughts and to share um, something that I believe God is sort of wanting to say to us from the Bible. This is something we do uh, each week, and today it is my job, and I'm glad to be able to do that. We're going to be focusing what we're thinking about in one story that we find in the Bible. Um, And for us as Christians, we believe that the Bible is the main way that God wants to communicate with us, to share with us, to reveal himself to us. And so we think it's important to dig deep and dive into it. But before uh, I come to read that passage, um, recently something has happened to me, which happens about every four years. Um, I think I may not be alone in this, but about every four years something catches me by surprise. I know it's coming, but I'm still surprised when it does come. I am, of course, speaking about becoming absolutely obsessed with this, um, (laughs) with curling. Three years and ten months, I can go without thinking once about curling. And then, get deep into it again, all over again. And and phrases that I'd forgotten, like corner guards and hog lines and having stones in the house and playing a freeze and, uh, and when I'm sweeping the kitchen, finding myself going, line is good, line is good, curl, curl! It, we, we, can, we can find ourselves getting, getting deep into it again. Am I alone? The fact that there are some people that said no means that those who said yes were wrong. One of the reasons that I enjoy watching curling very brief times every four years is that, is that it's not over till it's over. And in fact, all, all sports pretty much are like that. If you knew the result of a football match just from half-time, you wouldn't watch the second half. But there's always a chance that things will turn around. There's always a chance that, 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 that something different will happen. You can be however many stones down, you can be however many legs behind, but, but there's a chance. There's a chance that things might turn around. That's one of the joys of watching sport. And my father-in-law's here. He's a big fan of sport. He knows that I'm not as sporty as him. Uh, many of you will know that sport isn't my main thing. But when I do watch sport every four years... I find myself going, there is an excitement to it. And a lot of the excitement is based around the fact that things could turn around, that things could change, that things could happen differently. Turnaround is possible. And today, what we find, that is a big theme of what we're looking at today. The story we're looking about today is all about turnarounds. It has in it some underdogs, has some down and outs, and everything gets turned around when they meet with Jesus. Just to put it in context a little bit, this is quite near the beginning of Jesus's uh, three years of of, of ministry, of going around, of meeting people, of of, of teaching, of healing, of doing miracles, of showing people what God is like. And actually, this is before he's got his famous 12 disciples. And this is a story of one of the first times, it's not quite the first time he meets these people, but it's one one of the first interactions that they have with him. It's found in Luke chapter 5, and I'm going to start from verse 1. The words will be on the screen, uh, but you may like to, if you have brought a Bible, follow along as well. So we're looking at Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. 
Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. You might, by the way, be thinking it's a bit cheeky to get into a stranger's boat and ask them to push you out just so you can speak to a few more people. A, 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 a couple of passages earlier on, Jesus has miraculously healed Simon's mother-in-law, so he's kind of, he kind of owes him one. When he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they'd done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they'd taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. I want to start with that very final sentence that we just read. They pulled up, uh, they pulled up their boats on shore, left everything, and followed him. These are some businessmen. These are some rational, sensible people. They meet with Jesus, and we hear that they left everything, and they followed him. Firstly, wow. Secondly, why? Why would these sensible, rational, sane people leave everything they've got, leave even their boats, their source of income, leave their nets, this way that they make a living and choose to follow this man, Jesus? Why? For them, they literally followed him everywhere he went for three years. That word followed is, is a word um, which literally means sort of stay so close to someone that they, that they sort of rub off on you. This, this series, we're, we're going through a series of, of these passages all one after another at the moment uh, in, this, in this service, um, and it's called More Like Jesus. That's the name of our series, because as we're going through this story, we're seeing these people who were, who were close to Jesus. In fact, they were so close that Jesus sort of rubbed off on them, and they became more like him. That's what it meant for these people, but again, why? Why would they do this? I want to suggest to you that it's because they saw something and they knew it was something they needed and something that they wanted. And the thing that they saw was turnaround, was that things could turn around. In Jesus, they had witnessed the God of the turnaround. And that's who I want to speak about today. Because in fact, from their perspective, I think they saw three very important turnarounds happen through this story, and I want to think about them. The first turnaround, turnaround number one, is the fish. Jesus turned around this situation with the fish. We hear that they've been out all day, and they've caught nothing. These are fishermen. These are people who clearly have made a living. They're not bad at this. It's not that they're rubbish at it, but sometimes you have a good day with a big haul. Sometimes you have a bad day with nothing. That was the life of a fisherman, and obviously, that would have big impact on their families and on whether they'd be able to provide, but they'd had a bad day. And then Jesus borrows their boat for a while to do some, to do some teaching. And then he says, why don't we go out? Go on, go out and put your nets down again. And they say, Jesus, today's not a good day for fishing. Today is a day when that's just not going to happen. We've had a bad day. We haven't had a good catch of fish. And Jesus turns that around because he makes it so that there are fish to be caught. 
He makes it. He literally turns the fish around to put them in the path of this boat. So they will. This is a miraculous catch of fish, not just a lucky one. And you might be thinking at this point, ooh, okay, we've come across miracles now. Not sure I believe in miracles. It's okay. I'm not going to try and argue you into believing that miracles are possible. What I will say is that when historians look at documents like this, documents from this sort of era in time, to work out whether they're reliable or not, they're largely looking for two things. They're looking at how many copies of certain stories and manuscripts there were, and how close to the events they, they, they originate. And by those two measures, the New Testament, these Gospels, these stories of Jesus' life, are, by those standards, by historical, critical methods, the most reliable documents that we've got from that period of time. There's more evidence for the life and ministry and miracles of Jesus than there is for things like the life of Julius Caesar and all kinds of different things. Now, that isn't proof that these things happened. It is, I think, evidence that the people at the time believed these things happened. Now, those are two slightly different things, and you might think, well, they were, they were off their rocker. They were a bit nuts. They, didn't, they, they were duped. They were tricked. But I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that people around this time believed that Jesus did these miraculous things. And all of these miracles do at least two things. One is that they turn around a situation. Jesus uh, turned water into, a, into wine when there was no more wine left at a wedding. It turned it around from being a bad party to a really, really good party. Um, there was a time when Jesus fed 5,000 men plus their families uh, with just a, uh, the, the lunchbox of a, of a boy, and he, and he multiplied the food. He turned what was going to be a very hungry afternoon into something where there was plenty. He healed people. He turned around bodies that were sick and he turned them around to being healthy. There was a time when they were caught out in a storm, and it was threatening to break the boat apart and throw them all overboard. And Jesus, with a, with a simple phrase, calmed the storm. He turned around a stormy and dangerous situation into something that was peaceful and calm. Miracles, the miracles of Jesus in the Bible, which I believe happened, they turned things around. But they didn't just do that. They also revealed something about what God is like. The fact that he turned around a rubbish party to a good one by providing wine shows that God likes parties, shows that God wants people to be able to celebrate and enjoy things and have fun. The fact that he took broken bodies and healed them shows that God is a God of wholeness and of healing and of health, not one of sickness. It shows something about God. So what does this miracle reveal, this turnaround with the fish? I think it shows that God is a God who can turn failure into success. He can take something which is a failure and turn it round into something which is a success. They'd had a bad day, a failure of a day by fishermen's standards. And God turned it round into something else. He turned it round into a success. Now, I think that's important because I want to come on to turnaround number two in this story that we read. We've talked about the fish. Now I want to talk about the fishermen. Because that was the second thing that Jesus turned around through this story. Now, we don't know a lot about them. What we do know about them is that they're fishermen. There you go. That's what you came here for today, those stunning insights. These guys are fishermen. And that may not mean a lot. You know, it just happens to be their job. But um, actually, it would have meant an awful lot more 
to those who were there and those who knew them and those who were first reading this. What do I mean by that? Well, when I go into my doctor's surgery, I assume, I just, I meet a doctor and I assume that they have a medical degree because otherwise they really shouldn't be practicing. Similarly, if I, uh, if I speak with, if I phone someone, else, phone someone up who works for a solicitor's firm, who is a solicitor, I will assume a certain level of education in that. If someone's teaching children, I'll assume that they have a qualification that's relevant for that. Almost the reverse is happening here. If someone is a fisherman, it shows that they don't have certain qualifications. What do I mean by that? Well, in, in, in Jewish culture, Jesus was a Jewish man and these were Jewish fishermen. All boys, all Jewish boys from a young age would be taught the, what we know as the, the Old Testament. And they would, they would memorize parts of it or all of it. They would be meant to, uh, by, by a certain age, they were meant to have memorized the first five books of the Bible. And if they had, and they passed their test, great, fantastic. They could carry on in their studies. If not, they went and learnt their father's trade. And then if they carried on in their studies, then they were meant to learn more of it. If this is sounding anything like the 11 plus, then maybe we've got a frame of reference there. But they were meant to have learnt more of the scriptures. And again, if they, if, if they did, if they, if they passed that test, if they were able to, if they were clever enough and wise enough and, 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 and had the right, uh, the right kind of mind, then, then they would manage. And if not, they would go and they would learn their father's trade. And every step along the way, there were, there were opportunities for those who excelled and the successes to carry on and those who flunked out and failed to disappear and learn their father's trade. These are fishermen. We know that uh, they're friends of uh, James and John, Simon's partners, and we hear of them being sons of Zebedee, a fisherman. They'd learnt their father's trade. What does that mean? It means they'd flunked out of school. It means that at some point along the way, they'd not made the cut. They'd not made the measure. Someone had said to them, sorry, you failed. The very fact they were fishermen meant that in their culture, for the things that people thought mattered, they'd failed. They were failures. And that doesn't make no more than a lot of people. Most people at some point didn't make the cut. They were just ordinary people. I don't know about you, but for me, I can definitely look at parts of my life where someone has told me or where I've told myself, you've failed. The time when you get the phone call that says, sorry, we've given the job to somebody else. We failed at the job interview. We failed at that selection process. Failed an exam. Have a failed marriage. We have moral failure. Have that phrase, I feel like I'm failing at life or I'm an epic fail. We speak these words over ourselves or people speak them over us and there's some truth to them. We, we do fail certain things. I don't know whether for these fishermen they'd sort of taken that deep inside themselves and they just felt like absolute failures. But Jesus does the unthinkable. He invites them to come and follow him, to pick up their studies and follow a rabbi again. He invites them to, to do what everyone else had said they weren't able to do. He takes a bunch of failures and he forms them into a team. And he says, we're going to go together, follow me. I'll give you a purpose. I'll teach you what I know. He takes people who are failures and he turns them into not necessarily successes straight away, but a team because he sees something in them. One of my all-time favorite films is Coach Carter, where this coach, played by Samuel L. Jackson, he takes a bunch of 
young people who play basketball, and they're a bit of a ragtag bunch of people. They've got some very difficult, broken lives, and some of them are, some of them are in all kinds of trouble. And through coaching them, he helps them to come together. And these people who everyone else had written off, he gathers them together. More recently, for anyone who's a fan, Ted Lasso. Similar kind of idea, a little bit more upbeat. If anyone's watching Ted Lasso and comes to speak to me later on, don't talk about season two. I've only just started it, so no spoilers, please. Jesus takes these people who are failures, and he says, I don't care. I'm inviting you anyway. I take, I take encouragement in that, because I can look at things in my life that have been a failure. But Jesus doesn't actually just stop there. He goes one level deeper. Remember, we're trying to ask this question of, why is it that these people would give up everything and follow him? I think we're starting to get a picture of that. But he goes one step deeper. Doesn't just turn around the fish, doesn't just turn around the fishermen and their lives. He then goes inside. And the third turnaround we see is the fishermen's souls. Look at what it is that Simon Peter says. It's in verse 8 for anyone who's following along. After he's seen Jesus do this miraculous thing, this amazing thing, and he's called them out even though they failed in their lives. He then says, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Peter, when confront Simon Peter, he's sometimes called Simon, sometimes called Peter, um, when he's confronted with Jesus, who he sees as powerful and amazing and miraculous and all of these things, and he sees God in Jesus, he knows that he's not good enough. Not just because he's flunked out of school, not just because he's had a bad day on the water and hasn't caught a bunch of fish, but he says, I am a sinful man. He recognizes that inside, his soul is not pure, that he's got a dirty soul, that he's got a broken heart, and he knows, he has this sense, this feeling that it's just not good enough for someone like Jesus, who is perfect, who's miraculous, who's powerful. And he knows, and he says, Lord, I can't be near you. Get away from me. I, I can't be near you because I'm not good enough. He has that sense about it. And what about us? We've got a pretty bright, pretty clear, high-resolution screen behind me. I'm pretty sure that if any of us were told that all of our thoughts or all of the actions of our life were going to be playing as a little montage on here, not just the bits we want people to see, but the whole lot, I would run out of the room. I wouldn't want to see you see everything about me because I know that there's things about me that are not good, that are not right. And I can try and hide those things. Far better to share them. Far better to let others help us and to let God help us through other people. But I'd be like Peter saying, God, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough to get close because he has this sense that his sin his wrongness, his, his dirty soul, means that he's not able to be close to God. And in a sense, he's right. As Christians, we're famous for believing in heaven and in hell, and hell is about being separate from God, and heaven is about being close with God. It's, it's our choice. It's our choice which of those we want to have, but, but actually separation from God is where we naturally would be because of the mistakes and the failures and the things that we've done wrong. What does Jesus say in response to this Simon Peter who says, get away from me, I'm too sinful? Jesus says, don't be afraid. 
He says, don't be afraid. You don't have to run away from me. In fact, come. I'm going to give you purpose. We're going to go out and fish, not just for fish, but for people. We're going to tell other people that we can turn their lives around. We're going to, we're going to take other people who feel like a failure, and we're going to tell them that with God, something can change. That's what we're going to do. He doesn't say to Peter, yeah, you're right. You're an, ab- you're an abject failure. Get away from me. I don't want anything to do with you. He says, come on, don't be afraid. Come close. Because Jesus knows what's coming. Jesus knows that these fishermen are going to follow him around for, for about three years. And they're going to see amazing things and they're going to do amazing things themselves. But he knows that at the end of it, the cross is waiting for him. Jesus knows that at the end of these three years, people will become so jealous and so uh, afraid of this, of this new movement that he is creating that they'll find falsehood to pin on him. And they'll convict him wrongly and they'll kill him wrongly and he'll be executed. And he knows that that's coming. And he knows the reason for it. And the reason for it, just in case no one's ever told you, is that on the cross, Jesus was separated from God. Jesus was separated from his Father in heaven because he took your mess and my mess, all the stuff that we wouldn't want to be shown on that screen, on himself so that we don't have to carry it anymore. So that it doesn't have to be who we are. It doesn't have to define us. He takes all of those failures all of those mess-ups on himself, and he gets separated from God so that we don't have to. And then, three days later, the greatest turnaround in human history, when Jesus rises from the grave and says, that sin wasn't enough to keep me, separation from God wasn't enough to keep me, life is possible. And he invites us to share in that life as well. Jesus isn't just interested in helping a bunch of fishermen have some fish. He's not just interested in telling a bunch of people who've dropped out of Jewish school that he, that, that he sees something in them. He's interested in going deeper inside their hearts, inside their souls. And if that is true, if it's true that Jesus can do the miraculous, if it's true that Jesus can take people who are failures and make them a success, and if it's true that Jesus can even cleanse my soul, then I think we start to see why it is that these fishermen would give up everything and follow. That makes sense of it to me. What about you? Might that be true? Might it be something worth looking into, probing a little bit further? Are there parts of your life where you go, actually, you know what? I feel, I feel a failure. I feel as though I've let myself down, let other people down, failed someone else. Are there things in your history, in your present, that you're going, I just want rid of it. I just want it to be gone. I just want to feel, I don't want to feel dirty anymore. I want to feel clean. That may be where you are. It may not be. But I want to say to you today that the Jesus who did did this for these people is the Jesus who's done that for me, who's taken someone who feels like a failure sometimes, who's had that call saying, we've given the job to somebody else someone who's had a failed marriage, someone who's failed in friendship, someone who's failed in relationships, someone who's failed in his job, and someone who has failed morally many, many, many times, and who is aware of how broken he is. Jesus has done the same for me, so that I can hold my head up high and say, I don't need to hide, I don't need to be ashamed, 
because Jesus has taken me and he's cleaned me. The same Jesus who did that for them has done that for me. And he can do it for you. He wants to do that for everyone. And all we have to do is to say yes. And like these disciples, like these fishermen, choose to follow him. Choose to say, we'll go where you go. We'll get closer to you. Might there be a colleague or a friend who needs to hear that, who needs to know that, that God can turn their situation or their life or their soul around. For those who are following Jesus already, what is it that you will leave behind? What is it that you will let go of? What is it that you will give up, like these fishermen did, in order to follow more closely so that others might know, so that you might fish for people as well? I'm going to pray a prayer, and it's a prayer of responding to this and of saying to Jesus, yes, I need that in my life, and I want that in my life. I'm not going to ask you to repeat after me out loud, but I'll leave some pause, and I'll leave some space, and it might be that in your heart you want to pray this prayer. If you do, I'm not going to ask you to stand up or come to the front or anything like that. I'm just going to ask you to do that yourself, where you are. Let me pray. Lord God, I thank you that you are bigger than me. And I thank you that you are bigger than anything I might face. Thank you that you can turn anything around. And today I want to say yes and to ask you to turn me around. I am sorry for the ways in which I failed, for the ways in which I've fallen short. Thank you that your love and your forgiveness is deep enough for me. And I want to respond and say yes. And I want to follow you. That you might continue to turn around my life and my soul. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.